Well, let's read together from the Word of God, and we're turning uh, to Luke's Gospel. Luke uh, chapter 6, and we're beginning to read at verse number 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. I'm sure you've noticed that preachers repeat themselves. Every preacher repeats himself. And the longer, of course, he's preaching, uh, the more that will happen. And if the same people are listening uh, to him over a sustained period, they'll start to notice the familiar turns of phrase, the way he says certain things, the subjects perhaps uh, that he returns to. But of course, in the course of a faithful gospel ministry, there are great issues uh, that need uh, to be treated often. Uh, there are subjects that a preacher must of necessity return to and address again and again. Of course, that is true of the fundamentals of the way of salvation and of the Lord's call to discipleship. Those really are the core of any gospel ministry. The preacher will always be coming back to those basic subjects and considering them again and again. It will be from different angles, from different parts of the Word of God. Uh, but the truth itself doesn't change. Uh, and so inevitably, uh, there is and there has to be 
repetition. Same things have to be said numerous times. And sometimes it will be using similar words, sometimes the very same words. Uh, And people may think, I've heard that before. Uh, And they have. And they'll hear it probably again. Uh, And there are certain glorious topics that a preacher has to keep repeating because they are essential to salvation and to Christian living. And we see in the Gospels, in fact, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest preacher, of course, who ever walked the earth, uh, was no exception to that pattern that we've just been talking about. We find that Jesus, on different occasions, addressed the same topics and sometimes in the same words. And we'll be looking uh, at something of that today in our passage for meditation. So we're turning now to Luke chapter 6, looking today at verses 17 to 26, preaching on the plain. Preaching on the plain. And several things we see as we look at this address, the beginning of this address that Jesus preached. And the first thing is the ministry Jesus exercised. The ministry Jesus exercised. Now, in the verses just before that, from uh, 12 down to 16, uh, you see Jesus appointing uh, the 12 apostles, 12 of his disciples, as we were told in verse 13, whom he also designated apostles. Notice, too, significantly, uh, that group even uh, includes Judas Iscariot, verse 16. And as we're told in John uh, 6, 64, Jesus knew from the very beginning uh, that Judas would betray him. Uh, It came as no surprise to him. Uh, But can we imagine that the burden uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, knowing through the three years of his public ministry that this disciple is the one who would hand him over to the authorities and bring about his crucifixion. Jesus understood, of course, uh, from early on, even before the, the public part of his ministry, uh, that eventually uh, death would be the outcome of the road on which he was set. Uh, and so there was Judas with all the others, involved with the other disciples, day after day, week after week. Burden, no doubt, to the Savior's heart. The other disciples didn't suspect a thing. Right up until Judas left the Last Supper. But these apostles now are openly associated uh, with Jesus. And they go down, as we're told in verse 17, they go down together for this uh, preaching, for this sermon on the plain. So here are 12 publicly identified as Jesus' disciples. Others can come, listen, go away, go away indifferent, go away hostile, But here's the core, the twelve, that Jesus has appointed. And they gather at what the Gospels tell us was a level place. Just somewhere where 
a large crowd could gather to hear Jesus. And here is, in the next uh, section of Luke, a block of teaching that uh, often has been termed the Sermon on the Plain. It's not the same occasion as what we know as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 5, uh, 6 and 7. Uh, It's a different occasion, but as we will see, some of it is going to sound familiar. When you think, I've heard that before, it may very well be you're remembering the Sermon on the Mount. There are familiar turns of phrase that clearly Jesus is using again. But this is the the, the Sermon on the Plain. We can can use that uh, name uh, to designate it. There are significant similarities with the Sermon on the Mount. But as we're thinking about the, the ministry that Jesus exercised, there, as always, there are two sides, two elements to his ministry. We've seen it already in the Gospels, uh, but we can note it again here. This is the pattern that the Savior followed, two elements uh, in his ministry. There's first, the Word, the Word. Above all, Jesus preached. You see, sometimes we can come to think, well, Jesus' main work was healing and raising the dead and doing mighty works, but his fundamental ministry was preaching. Preaching, as Mark 1.15 puts it, the good news. Repent and believe in the good news he proclaimed. And that we see here again. And it's good news, of course, because it concerns the saving work that will be carried out by the Messiah himself. It's good news because it is God's way of salvation. Not only did Jesus proclaim how men and women were to enter the kingdom, how they were to receive salvation, but also he proclaimed how we are to live in the kingdom. What does kingdom life look like? What does a Christian look like. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, and all through his teaching, Jesus spells out in the most down-to-earth practical way what the life of the kingdom looks like. And from verse 27 on, verses God willing, we look at in the coming weeks, uh, Jesus shows something of what that life should be. People, we're told, had come to hear him. Maybe they have heard some of the the reports of his preaching, for example, in Nazareth, uh, that we thought about back in chapter 4, that so shocked and so incensed people. The word, of course, would spread. Do you know what he said? I was there. I heard. Were you there? And, of course, there is a, a curiosity element that people want to come and hear what he has to say. Will he say something shocking again? So in his ministry there is word, but there's also deed. And people come, some of them would come only for this reason, to be healed of their diseases, verse 18. And others, similarly, those troubled by evil spirits, were cured. Uh, those are two different things. There's no uh, primitive confusion between sickness and uh, the work uh, of demons. That's somehow uh, what some think that 
these poor people didn't know any better and they just thought it was the devil made them sick. That's not in the Gospels at all. There's a clear distinction. Luke was a physician, remember, between sickness and the activity of Satan. But many would come purely to be cured with no deeper uh, motivation. But again, don't we see Jesus' power and authority? We've noticed it already uh, in a number of uh, his actions and his miracles. Healing the man let down through the roof, you remember, and other occasions like that. You see his power over the material, physical world, but also over the spiritual realm. He has absolute authority. He is the creator and he's the Messiah. But we need to understand that Jesus' deeds, the miracles that he performed, always had a particular purpose and it was to support his preaching ministry. We shouldn't separate word and deed. And we certainly shouldn't focus on the deed and the miracle. The miracle's function was to support Jesus' preaching. They served to authenticate his word, to point those who had the eyes to see it, to the, the reality the Messiah has come. And there were those, by God's grace, who did understand that. And who realized these are not just mighty works like some kind of circus performance. These are mighty works that support the message and that show he is the one who is able to transform the hearts and lives of men and women. The ministry Jesus exercised, a ministry of word and deed. But then secondly, the very heart of this passage, we see the blessings Jesus promised. The blessings Jesus promised. Jesus pronounces certain people blessed. In Latin it's beati and you get beatitudes applied to these sayings. Blessed does blessed mean? It means truly happy. This is true happiness. Jesus spells it out for us very strikingly, very practically. But it's true happiness that is only possible in the context of life in the kingdom of God. Only there will you ever be truly happy. It's not possible by any other means. And people all around us and out the streets and in our community are looking for happiness. But Jesus is telling us that it's in the kingdom that he proclaimed that true happiness, that blessedness is possible and nowhere else. This is the life for which we were created. This is life as God made us to live it, life in fellowship with God. And if you're not in fellowship with God, you will never experience true happiness. Oh, there may be certain pleasures, of course there are, joys and the ordinary things of life, but outside fellowship with God, outside his kingdom, you will never be blessed, you will never be truly happy. 
And when we look at what Jesus said about the people who are blessed, it's a reversal, isn't it, of the world's outlook. It's the very opposite of what people of the world would say is is happiness. Those that Jesus pronounces to be blessed, the poor, uh, the the hungry, the weeping, uh, those who are uh, scorned and abused, those are the people who are despised by the world. Who wants to be poor? Who wants to be hungry? This is the very opposite of the world's values. And it reminds us very powerfully that Jesus' disciples are called to life according to the Lord's will, not according to the values of the world around. And it reminds us too that if we are going to be disciples of Jesus, if we are going to be blessed, we've got to be prepared for the scorn of the world because that is what we will get. And increasingly in our society, as people move further and further away from God and from God's word, we will experience the scorn of the world increasingly. And that will be the lot of the younger generations, unless God works powerfully to turn this society around. We need to be prepared to live a life that looks to the world as a failure, as undesirable, as as foolish. And that's the people that Jesus says are blessed. The the blessed that he speaks of, as you can see uh, here, are those who are poor, those who are hungry, those who weep, people who are hated, by others. How are we to understand these expressions about being poor, being hungry? Do we take them literally, materially? Is Jesus saying, if you've no money in the bank, you're blessed? Is he saying, if you've no food in the table, you're blessed? Is that what he means? There are those who would suggest it is. It's a kind of, of recipe for social revolution that Jesus is offering, but that isn't the case. And if we compare these verses with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. So are we then to spiritualize these descriptions in Luke 6? Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, notice verse 22, where the Lord speaks of those who are hated, when men exclude you, insult you, reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Now that is significant, is it not? Surely that is telling us that that all of this is to be viewed, these hardships, the the poverty, the hunger, the the weeping, uh, the abuse, all these hardships are consequences of being disciples of the Messiah, the Son of Man. It is that kind of poverty, that kind of hunger, the consequences of being faithful disciples. And sometimes it will mean literally that that people are poor, hungry. Many Christians experience that in different parts of the world. 
but it is fundamentally the consequences of being a disciple. And if we bear those consequences, Jesus says we are blessed. He's spelling out for us the necessary cost of being one of his disciples. Perhaps for generations uh, in this part of the world, the cost of being a disciple of Jesus hasn't been all that high. Society generally has been sympathetic to the church and to, to Christians, but that is rapidly disappearing. If you haven't realized that, look around, listen to the media. The cost is increasing if we're to be faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus. And there are brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who know that only too well. Here's the cost of discipleship. The poor, first of all, poor because they're aware of their need and they're trusting in the Lord. It may be in need materially, but above all, it's their spiritual need. And they're looking to the Lord to supply what they require. And of them, Jesus says, yours is the kingdom of God. The kingdom is not for people who feel self-sufficient, for people uh, who, who are proud of who they are and what they've achieved. There are plenty like that in Jesus' day. The scribes and the Pharisees were among the most self-satisfied people you could have encountered. They were the good living of the good living. They had no sense of, of poverty. But disciples of Jesus, whom he says are blessed, are those who know they depend on the Lord for everything materially and spiritually. Those who hunger, perhaps hunger for food, if that's what being a faithful disciple means. Again, Christians have often experienced that. But here are people also who are, are thirsting, who are hungry for justice and righteousness, Matthew 5, 6. People who, who look at the world and who long to see righteousness prevailing in a world where it doesn't, by and large. The prospect for those who hunger in this way, Jesus says, you will be satisfied. You will see justice and righteousness. And if it is physical hunger experience, a day will come when that will be no more. Of course, it may be not in this life, but in the life to come, uh, that disciples will be satisfied. Satisfied with all that the Lord will give to his people in the new creation. Those who are poor, those who hunger, those who weep. Why might they weep? Weep perhaps as they sorrow for their sin and for the sins of the world around them. And if we lose a sense of grief, when we see sin prevailing around us, then we've lost something vital. Weeping over sin, ours and the sin of others. And perhaps weeping in the midst of trials that come 
because we're faithful disciples. And the Lord's people weep in the midst of trials. There are Christians sometimes who feel they've got to pretend that everything is well and everything is sunny and everything's bright. But really that doesn't ring true. Trials come. Jesus warned us they would. And there are the times when faithful disciples weep in the midst of what they endure for the sake of Jesus. That's reality. That's the life to which he calls us. And yet the Lord says, you will laugh. You'll laugh. There'll be joy. Yes, there's joy in the Lord now. Don't we have times of joy even when we're in the midst of trials? The trust we do. James says, count it all joy when you encounter all kinds of trials. There, there is joy now by God's grace, but oh, a day is coming when there will be nothing but joy. And sorrow and all loss will be in the past when we see Christ face to face. You will laugh. Laugh with delight in the Savior and what he's done for us. Those who weep. And what about those who endure the hatred of the world? And Jesus puts it very powerfully when men hate you, exclude you, insult you, reject your name as evil. That is a heavy burden to bear. To be treated like that simply because you're a Christian and to be seen as undesirable, as a malign influence, as, as the sort of person the world would be better without. And again, many Christians experience that, and increasingly in our own society, Christians are experiencing that. Christians and the Christian church, less and less are something desirable to have, even if you're not one yourself. More and more they become something we'd be better without. So that we could get on with life without these Christians always going on about sin and all that sort of stuff. Better without them. And we're going to encounter more and more of that in years to come. Christians must be ready for that cost. But this is a Savior who knew what he was talking about. He warns us, John fifteen twenty. if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you too. We're no better than our Savior. Why should we be? He suffered. Those who belong to him likewise will suffer. The Lord promises blessing. There's our encouragement. He knows the poverty and the hunger and the weeping and the persecution. He knows it. And he pronounces such disciples are blessed. All who fit these categories are blessed. He says rejoice. Rejoice. Not by pretending everything's fine. Not by denying that the struggle and the hardship and the cost. And sometimes among Christians there is a lot of pretending pretending that all's well. Christian life is easy. But it isn't. The Lord tells us it won't be. 
We don't pretend that the hardships are not real. But in them we see the Lord's hand. We know that these things are for a purpose. And God is working out a good purpose in the midst of trials and hardships and cost. And therefore we can rejoice. Above all, he says, great is your reward in heaven. Are we sometimes embarrassed to think about rewards in heaven? The world would deride it, of course, as pie in the sky. And so we shy away from it and don't talk about it. We shouldn't. It's a wonderful thing to be assured by the Lord that great is our reward in heaven. We should look forward to heaven. We should anticipate it. We should long for it because it will be the day of perfection in the presence of Christ. To think of heaven is not an escape. It is solid reality. It's the necessary perspective for Christians. That's how we should live our lives, conscious that this life isn't all, and indeed this life isn't the best that Christ has for us. The best is still to come. Rejoice. Yes, there's hardship. There is pain. But the Lord is working out his purpose. The reward is great. And remember, we're standing in a glorious tradition. A tradition of suffering for the Lord's sake. All down through history, the Lord's people have suffered for his sake. This is how their fathers treated the prophets, we're told. And we have got to pass through trials into glory. There's no shortcut. There's no easy way. Great is your reward in heaven. The ministry Jesus exercised. The blessings Jesus promised. And then finally, the woes that Jesus pronounced. The woes Jesus pronounced. Verses 24, 5, and 6. What a contrast. Here are the world's values set in contrast with the values of the kingdom. And now he addresses the rich, the well-fed, those who laugh, those of whom all men speak well. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying that there will never be Christian disciples who are rich, for instance. Joseph of Arimathea was an example. There have been wealthy Christians. But by and large, he is speaking of the people of the world who have all of these things. And yet they don't have what is most important. Because he's describing a life of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. He thought, I've enough. I have the things of this world. I don't need anything else. Why would I need religion? Why would I need Jesus? I've got all I need. And that's the people of the world around us. When we evangelize, when we do door-to-door, when we talk to people... They don't have a sense of need of the spiritual. And why would you need a saviour if you don't think there's too much wrong with your life? You're doing pretty well. The things of this world are quite satisfying. These are the people Jesus 
is describing. People focused on the pleasures of this life. God's not in their thoughts. He's certainly not the center of their lives. This is the life of what the Bible calls the natural man. The person who's still in his or her sin. Separated from God. Not in his kingdom. And it's a life that is utter folly. Remember the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. The man who tore down his barns, built bigger ones. He was flourishing. He he had everything the world would have wanted. But how did God view him? You fool. Could there be any greater condemnation of a person for God to say to him, you fool. Be a fool in God's sight is truly to be a fool. Here are people who have nothing lasting, certainly not lasting, into the world to come. Oh, you may be rich now, but you've already got all you're going to get. You may be well fed now, but you'll go hungry. You may laugh, but you'll mourn and weep because you'll discover what you have lost eternal life and people may speak well of you they may talk about you as a great fellow but you don't have the most important thing of all living relationship fellowship with the Lord and all that people like that are living for they leave behind their wealth their plenty their achievements they'll leave them all behind and they really will Take none of it with them. And there's a danger, of course, trying to fit into the world. Even Christians can fall into it sometime. To want everybody to speak well of them, not to be prepared for the cost of discipleship, beware. For faithful to Jesus, there's always a cost. To live in the ways of the world and by the values of the world is ultimately to be excluded from the joy of the kingdom. They will not rejoice. Without Christ, no one will rejoice at the last day. It's a solemn warning, which this portion of the Sermon on the Plain ends. Oh, there's blessedness, there's true blessedness in Christ, even now, and greater things to come. Without Christ, you have nothing that matters. And the little you've got, you'll leave it behind. May the Lord apply his truth to our hearts, that we might be among those who are blessed, because Christ is ours, and salvation is ours, and glory will be ours. Amen.